In 2014, the then Foreign Minister of Sweden, Margot Wallström, declared that her country would henceforth pursue a feminist foreign policy. This was, at the time, widely regarded, and indeed widely derided, as one of those self-indulgent only-in-Scandinavia ideas. But as is often the case with Scandinavian ideas, it may just have been somewhat ahead of its time. At last count, 16 national governments, and not just in Scandinavia, have pledged themselves to feminist foreign policies. Feminist foreign policies are, in general and obviously, policies which prioritise women and gender equality. A fair enough thing to do, given in how many countries women are still politically, economically and culturally marginalised, to the detriment not only of those women, but also those countries. But there is also a suggestion that feminist foreign policy is a different way of thinking about diplomacy, collaborative rather than confrontational, oriented towards people rather than power. How does feminist foreign policy work in practice? How might the world be better, or at least different, if more women were involved in running it? And why might it be expeditious if pursuing a feminist foreign policy not to tell people you're doing it? This is The Foreign Desk. When I assumed the presidency of Liberia in January 2006, we faced the tremendous challenges of a post-conflict nation. We also faced the challenges of those left behind, the primary victims of all civil wars, women and children. We're extremely preoccupied with what is going on in Mariupol. We know also that women are used and children are used as weapons of war and are weaponized. That is extremely preoccupying because we know that sexual violence is a lasting trauma. I'm the Prime Minister of New Zealand and I am among only 5% of world leaders who are women. And yet my leadership in New Zealand is not unusual. I have to say that in many ways that probably contributed to the fact that as a young woman I did not question whether or not my gender would get in the way of me following my dreams and my aspirations. I did want to start by and make one thing very clear. I may be a little grayer than I was eight years ago, but this is what a feminist looks like. If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. And joining me first of all from Stockholm is Margot Wallström, former Minister for Foreign Affairs of Sweden. First of all, when you came up with that phrase, feminist foreign policy, what did you mean by it? I mean that foreign policy today has to take into account and be steered by the knowledge that when women are around the negotiating table, when women are the signatures of of any peace deals, those peace agreements will last longer. They have a better chance of making peace. And the situation now is the opposite, that women are basically excluded from many of these peace processes. And I think it makes sense. It's not only the right thing to do, it's a smart thing to do. 
as well. So I think that in a situation where there is so much discrimination still against uh, women and where they are excluded, we have to work on that in our foreign and security policy to become more effective. That right there brings us, I guess, to what is the big question underpinning this, which is that one of whether women do think about this stuff, foreign policy in general, forging of peace in particular, in an especially different way to men. Do you think that is the case? And if it is the case, are there specific examples which demonstrate that? Not necessarily, but we can say that from experience and from the traditional roles that women and men have been given respectively, women have engaged more than men, more visibly than men, for example, in peace movements and so on. And I think that has to do with the fact that the role that has been given to women is very often to take care of children and the elderly. And we can see it play out today in Ukraine where the men, of course, they are recruited, they are drafted to be fighting directly in the war. Many of the women have to leave. They leave with the children or they stay. And then many of them are also soldiers and actually also killed and they suffer in the war. But many of them do exactly this. They take care of, of everything living. They take care of children and the elderly and make sure that society can work from that point of view. But the thing is, women make up half of the world's population. And if you see that there is discrimination against women, that they are not given a voice, or rather that they are not listened to, they do have a voice, then you have to think differently about some of these peace processes and some of the results that you get. We know that those peace processes where women have been invited, where they've been at the negotiating table, they bring another perspective because of their different experiences. But they are allowed and they have different views like men have. So we Mm. cannot say that all women are the same, but they bring a somewhat different perspective, different knowledge and insight. And for example, in Colombia, in that peace process where they fought their way to the negotiating table, the result was that more options were placed on the table. And women would say things like, well, if you don't have land reform, how do you think there will be peace in this country? So they brought different issues and different perspectives into the discussions. Is the thinking behind it as well that the emancipation or protection or indeed involvement of women in diplomacy and foreign policy does unlock a great deal else. I mean, this is just a personal observation of mine. Those countries where women are marginalised, certainly institutionally and systemically marginalised, you just get a really obvious sense of what that is costing that particular country. Of course. I mean, how would anybody want to refrain from the opportunity of, of using the potential of half of the population? And that goes for foreign policy and security policy as well. And we often heard, I remember from working in the UN system, we often heard the argument, well, there are no women, they said, because there were so few women as negotiators and mediators. But we, uh, for example, in Sweden and through the feminist foreign policy, we, we established a network of women mediators and negotiators. And there were 15 when I started and 
they were all deployed to conflict or post-conflict situations. Their experience was used and then it spread. So now I think we have those networks of women mediators and negotiators all around the globe. It's hard to know whether this is a symptom or a cause of that marginalising of women, but do you think it is also the case that situations in which it is women who are being specifically oppressed, whether that is at an institutional governmental level like we see in Afghanistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, or the prevalence of sexual violence in war, that when women specifically are on the receiving end, it is taken less seriously? Yeah, I think so. I mean, what happens is that if in those peace negotiations, women are excluded, you risk that, for example, sexual violence as a war crime will never be mentioned. It will never be brought up. And it means also that impunity for these type of crimes will continue. We've seen it over and over again. So I think that you make invisible a number of these elements in society that make it less effective and less fair. So if you were, for example, hypothetically trying to apply a principle of a feminist foreign policy to something like Ukraine and Russia, would that be the kind of thing you're thinking of, that any talk about restorative justice does have to consider the undoubted sexual violence committed during this war? But also the specific role that women play in war, that they have a somewhat different role, a majority of them. But as I said, they love their country as much as men. They make up half of the population. How can you think that you can build peace without them or without listening to what was it like for you? Or how do we deal with the fact that you were exposed, more exposed to the risks of trafficking or sexual violence than men were? And there will not be justice or peace for women if they are not invited to the negotiating table. Their stories have to be heard and their suffering has to be acknowledged. Your idea of a feminist foreign policy was taken up by several other countries. As I understand it, though, the label of a feminist foreign policy has now been officially ditched by Sweden. Why do you think that was? Was there something about calling it a feminist foreign policy which did put people on the defensive, even if it obviously shouldn't have? Yeah, I think so. They hated it. But they also had to recognize that it was actually successful. I mean, it became a concept and there are so many organizations and researchers and, you know, so everywhere this struck a chord, apparently. So people understood that this stood for something important and necessary change was built into this. So they say that most of the content they will keep, but they don't want to call it a feminist. Fine with me if they do the right thing. And I do believe that it will stay on, sometimes in an unexpected way. Today, I read a big article in one of the Swedish dailies about South Korea. South Korea understands that they will have to put more women into the labor force in South Korea for strengthening the economy. And they used actually the example of a cultural expression, there was an exhibition called Swedish Dads. And that was part of the feminist foreign policy because it was touring sort of the world and in many embassies they put this. And it was just pictures, simple photos with Swedish dads with their children and how they did it and small stories about what everyday life was for these dads using their parental leave. 
And you cannot believe the effect that this had because in many of those places, the embassies would then invite people to send their own and men to send their own photos and short stories about their relation to children. And in some countries, it actually triggered a change so that they introduced parental leave. So they changed the legislation. And South Korea builds very much on these particular stories. So that was great to see. Margot Wallström, thank you for joining us. That was Margot Wallström, former Minister for Foreign Affairs of Sweden. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. I'm joined now by Jennifer Piscopo, Professor of Gender and Politics at Royal Holloway University of London and Director of the Centre for Research and Scholarship at Occidental College in Los Angeles. First of all, does having a greater number of women in a country's politics necessarily end up changing a country's foreign policy? So I would say the proportion of women matters, but it's definitely not natural, right? So countries that have adopted feminist foreign policies, you know, have had a real strong internal push from women, usually women specifically in the foreign ministry, women in diplomacy, you know, working within the ministry and working within government to sort of develop the policies, write the white papers, you know, and urge the governments to formally adopt it. So the numbers of women absolutely matters and sort of the longer term trajectory of women and the upward course of the foreign ministry matters, but it's definitely not natural because even as women sort of enter these institutions, they have really had to fight quite hard for their governments to adopt feminist foreign policies. So numbers matter, but also it's still a battle at the ministerial and government level. But do you necessarily need gender parity in your own parliament or something close to it before you can go around the world projecting a feminist foreign policy? Because it would kind of undermine that, wouldn't you, if people could just point back at you and say, well, you might want to sort yourselves out first. Well, and this happens, right? And so the countries that have feminist foreign policies or sort of feminist spins on their foreign policies, think about Canada that doesn't have a full feminist foreign policy, but has what they call a feminist international assistance policy. You know, it happens, right? Certainly domestic and international actors might point out that these countries are being cynical or even hypocritical, right? If they still have gender flaws at home. So think about Canada, you know, struggling for years to account for murdered and missing Indigenous women. How can then Canada go internationally and sell itself as a beacon of gender equality. But I think that those arguments are fair, right? But they also miss a really important point, which is that the actors who are pushing for a feminist foreign policy are thinking about it as an agenda setting and an accountability tool. You know, it gives them another way through which to try to hold their government, both domestically and internationally, accountable for fulfilling gender equality aims, right? So it's not about sort of, oh, we've achieved it and now we're going to promote it. I mean, certainly countries might try to sell it that way. But the actual actors wielding these tools are thinking about it as aspirational, right, as well as this way to push forward action at home and abroad on gender equality. But when we look at countries which are promoting or pushing what they're talking about as a feminist foreign policy, is there a clear line yet on what we mean by that? If we think, say, for example, a country like Mexico, which does pronounce a feminist foreign policy, what does that actually mean when that policy is promoted or enacted? 
So, I mean, sort of broadly speaking, what countries are trying to do is underscore their commitment to a set of liberal or progressive values around gender equality, around women's rights at home and abroad. So Mexico thinks about its feminist foreign policy as both internal relative to the Mexican foreign ministry. So it is about promoting women through the ranks of the foreign ministry, making visible their contributions and external, right, as centering gender equality and women's rights in their foreign policies. So this could take a variety of forms on the ground. So it can mean directing additional foreign aid to organizations that promote women's rights and gender equality, to funding women's rights organizations, and to centering things like gender equality in the kinds of international deals that countries make. So for instance, in Mexico, if we look at some of the trade deals that Mexico, US, and Canada signed recently, that trade deal was sort of continuous and parallel with the announcement of Mexico's foreign policy, but it resulted in various provisions and that NAFTA 2 deal, such as, you know, only dealing with employers that had protections for workers against things like sexual harassment and gender discrimination, having additional provisions to say protect small businesses, artisanal businesses, trading artisanal goods out of Mexico that might be predominantly run by indigenous women. These aren't splashy gains that make the headlines. But again, the feminist foreign policy gives these international actors who are at the negotiating table that are making funding decisions a way, right, to try to tilt the balance towards these gender equality considerations. It is a a relatively new-ish idea, and it's not necessarily a a massively mainstream line in foreign policy practice yet. But already, do you get the sense, or are there examples of any resistance to it, any countries where they're not necessarily entirely sold on feminism as an idea, getting a bit defensive about the idea of somebody trying to interest them in it? You know, the countries that we see adopting feminist foreign policies have made kind of a broader set of commitment to progressive values part of their international platform, right? Whether you think that they are sincere or not, or, you know, consistent in their values or not, that's another question, right? But countries like Canada, France, Mexico, recently Chile, right, they are trying to orient themselves to being a set of countries that is promoting progressive values abroad that includes but is not limited to gender equality. So you're not going to get sort of an open opposition in those countries, but you are going to get maybe more resistance to the formal adoption of a feminist foreign policy that's happening at the level of the ministry and that's sort of not being picked up by the media. I mean, Canada is a fascinating case, right? Canada has this feminist international assistance policy, but it doesn't have a full feminist foreign policy. Canada also has a gender mainstreaming mandate that applies across the federal government, including to the foreign ministry, which means that gender equality concerns are getting picked up in defense, in trade, even if they're not getting picked up through having a full feminist foreign policy. And so you're like, why doesn't Canada just dive in, right? Say it has a feminist foreign policy, it's doing everything anyway. And so I think these resistances are happening in elite policy circles, but they're not happening in the media because that would sort of contradict the overall way Canada's positioning itself internationally. And I think they're falling in line, you know, with the international discourse, but maybe working on the details at home in ways that we don't see in the press. Is there an aspect of this, though, as well, when the foreign policy is itself not just feminist, but is actually presented by a woman? I guess to boil it down to where you are, do you think the world looks at the United States at all differently when the Secretary of State is a woman? 
Yeah. I mean, certainly having women in these positions matters enormously. And so we talk about feminist foreign policy, and we've mentioned that it's partly a tool internally, right, for countries to improve the progress of women through the foreign ministry and in the diplomatic corps. You know, even a few years ago, I think the estimate was about women held 15% of ambassador positions worldwide. About 10 years ago, it was that women were less than 10% of negotiators in trade deals, in peace deals. So even accounting for recent gains, women are still far from parity in leadership and foreign policy. And even I looked at a recent study where even in countries that we think are sort of closer to parity in foreign policy leadership, Denmark, for instance, Sweden, women are still less likely to be appointed as ambassadors to countries that that country considers economically important or to countries that are engaged in conflict or civil war. So there is still far to go. And I think countries know this, right? There has been progress and countries can strategically use women to signal, right, a reorientation in foreign policy. My colleagues, for instance, have shown that switching to defense, when women become defense ministers, it's often because countries are trying to signal a new direction, right? Perhaps they're going to pursue more peacekeeping internationally. They're going to pursue less militarism. But at the same time, you know, the women who reach these positions are powerful political actors in their own right. And they are going to take the chance, even if they've been promoted, because there's a strategy around using gender to signal certain things. The women who reach these positions, they're qualified, they are ready, and they're also going to try to take the chance to put their stamp on things. Jennifer, thank you for joining us. That was Jennifer Piscopo, Professor of Gender and Politics at Royal Holloway University of London. This is the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. When Slovenia was elected to the UN Security Council as a non-permanent member earlier this year, Slovenia's Foreign Minister Tanja Fahon wanted women, peace and security to rank high among Slovenia's priorities. And Tanja Fahon joins me now from Ljubljana. Minister, you launched a feminist foreign policy on June 24th this year. That's the International Day of Women in Diplomacy. What do you understand by the phrase? I mean, the foreign feminist policy, it's not a new concept. It's in fact nothing really new, but it's extremely important to raise the awareness about equalities, about raising awareness or empowerment of women and girls in conflicts, in violence, you know, to put equalities or gender balance aspects to all uh, foreign affairs policies. And for that reason, since I'm the first female foreign minister, and that was something that I've been also dealing in the past, I very quickly started elaborating, we have to do more. Uh, we have to do more inside the house, inside our policies, but also included to all our foreign policies. And that is why we established a draft or created a draft on feminist foreign policies. We have a network. You remember this was first idea from Swedish colleagues. Mm -hmm. And actually, as I said, it's nothing new. But we had a, an interesting reflection whether to use a word feminism or not, because it caused some provocation in the debate. But it was exactly what I wanted to achieve. And then I realized that it's still, you know, also in our society or at our ministry, that there are issues we have seriously to address when it comes to all equalities or, you know, giving genders equal opportunities. 
are you able to point to any specific policies which have had definable real-world outcomes, part of something that you think of as a feminist foreign policy which has actually worked on the ground? I mean, certainly, immediately when we started discussing, we have a big network of ministers that are somehow on digital platform connected, dealing with feminist foreign policies. It's mostly, I have to say, female ministers, and we have a strong platform where we exchange what is going on. Like in the very beginning, I became a minister. We issued a very strong statement together about the situation of women and girls and in Iran and in Afghanistan. And we were working hard there with humanitarian civil rights organization, how to, you know, ensure that the girls and women are in the education system, that they don't have been to work in humanitarian organization and so on. So our voice was very vocal, especially because it was a group of ministers from different parts of the globe. And I have to say that we still have this digital platform on which we exchange some critical situations and we develop ideas how to together address them. And even though we often, this is another aspect, I see, for example, on the level of EU ministers, we are seven female ministers out of 27, which is less than a third. But when we meet together, it's surprisingly, despite of all the difficult and challenging issues we have on the table, we very often start addressing also um, the issues of girls, women. Obviously, it somehow feels closer to our heart. And um, of course, it's good to have men and male colleagues on board too. But does the issuing of those statements, at least so far that you've noticed, translate into actual impact in the places that you're making statements about? These are kind of regimes, if you think of somewhere like Afghanistan, Iran even, they kind of have a reflexive policy of ignoring most of what women say to them. I mean, absolutely, we have really to create a political pressure and, of course, to create environment that doesn't exclude women and girls from first and foremost education system and then of course to ensure them empowerment to give them possibilities and it's not about Afghanistan in Iran I was often engaged in different humanitarian projects being in Africa where you have to give women in poverty or in a difficult living situation conditions to develop certain skills to be self-sustainable to live their own life and these humanitarian projects are equally very important that we, as a ministry, with our development um, and humanitarian policy, try to sustain and even make these policies stronger. When I started talking about feminist foreign policy, first, I also wanted to be a very good example, meaning that, of course, you cannot lead such projects if you don't make some sort of a parity on the leading positions you have back at home. So we also created at the ministry leading positions with parity. And if you look, for example, on our network of embassies, we have a very highly educated diplomats, but only one third of ambassadors abroad are female ambassadors. So you can see that first we have to be a good example ourselves, then we can tell others how to empower girls and uh, women. And there are so many conflicts and so many areas that the uh, women and girls are first victims of violence, of sexual violence, of 
conflicts of, you know, lack of education, lack of job opportunities, inequality. So that is quite some challenges we have. There's a question I wanted to put as well about style as well as content. You mentioned earlier those sort of informal gatherings of such female foreign ministers as there are. And I I know you have at things like the NATO summit, where I think we've spoken before, tried to organise informal gatherings of female foreign ministers. But when foreign policy is driven by a group of women or devised by a group of women, do you feel like there's a different tone to it as well as perhaps different policy priorities? I mean, certainly there is a slightly different tone. Why? Because we, of course, feel we are in a way minority ourselves. If you look that we are maybe one third of ministers um, that we appear, we of course are maybe more emotionally or more committed to address those topics. Maybe because we feel we want to give from our examples, women, some inspiration to become leaders, to become active, to take their responsibilities, to empower them. And this gives us certain strength. So the debates we are having are usually a very, very encouraging one and with a lot of inspiration and energy. Minister, thank you for joining us. That was Slovenia's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Tanja Fahon. Finally, on today's show, the question of whether women pursue politics and diplomacy any better or worse, or even notably differently from men, is probably not precisely answerable. But it is difficult to imagine that making more of an effort to involve women in peacemaking initiatives couldn't help. Joining me now from Helsinki is Johanna Paltonen, Head of Women in Peacemaking at the Crisis Management Initiative, a leading independent organisation specialising in mediation. Johanna, first of all, the big question, do women approach peacemaking fundamentally differently? I would say that to some extent, yes. But needless to say, that's not because of biology. It's because that in many contexts, women tend to have somewhat different social roles compared to men. And it's these different social roles that shape the interests and vulnerabilities also that women have in conflict settings. And that brings a slightly different approach to peacemaking as well. So if we speak in very practical terms, women as participants or negotiators in peace processes We have evidence that they tend to bring slightly different issues to the table. It could be because of the roles they have in communities. They are more likely to raise substantive issues related to land rights, reparation to victims, economic development and transitional justice, for instance. But if we then think about women as peacemakers, as those third party mediators or dialogue facilitators, we cannot really say that the approach is fundamentally different. Research kind of highlights that there are certain approaches that women are more likely to take in mediation, more facilitative style, uh, more empathetic listening compared to more power-based mediation, for instance. But across the board, I think we need to be quite careful not to essentialize women, that because of their gender, they automatically share some essential approaches. But that aspect you mentioned of women tending to bring perhaps different issues to the table, are you aware of real world examples of that from the work you've been involved in? Yes, we we do see that tendency. We work with women in many contexts in Libya, Yemen, Sudan, and there are certain issues like issues around reconciliation, transitional justice, 
and some priorities for community development that women tend to be more likely to bring to the table. And also in certain contexts, at least these specific social roles that women have in communities can open up particular avenues for confidence building. For instance, in Yemen, women are more able to visit prisons, for instance, than men. They have more social mobility to move across conflict boundaries, and this has enabled them to mediate local ceasefires, to allow for passage for people and supplies, and also to mediate some prisoners' exchanges. So there are some very practical differences that we see on the ground. I mean, it's probably much more often the case that we end up learning the hard way of what is missed out on when women are not included in processes like this. Are these the kind of issues which tend to get missed or forgotten about or overlooked when it is just men at the table? If we look at the history of modern peacemaking, that's actually most peace processes have not really included women. I mean, it's practically seven out of every 10 peace processes hasn't had any women as mediators or signatories. Uh, So we don't necessarily know what we are missing out. Over the past three decades, if we look at the statistics, women constituted around 13% of all negotiators, those negotiating peace agreements, and around 6% of mediators. Uh, So while there has been some progress, it's really low, a majority of peace processes are still not including women. What difference does that make? Of course, we don't have the counterfactual. We do know that when women are absent, at least it's very unlikely that there will be any gender provisions in the subsequent agreements. Also, that's very unlikely that there are any references made to gender-based violence or sexual violence in conflict. And overall, I mean, we know that pretty much half of all peace agreements, they fail in their first five years. So I don't want to suggest that this is because women are not included, but certainly this modest success rate should encourage us to look for ways to do peacemaking better. Do you still encounter much resistance to the idea of including women in peace processes and and related diplomatic structures? There is resistance and there's this ongoing global pushback on women's rights that we are witnessing is giving more oxygen to this resistance. And this resistance can come in very many formats. It can be very explicit, very public, direct security threats to women negotiators, online harassment, public shaming or physical threats. And we see that this is on the increase in many contexts. Resistance can also be a little bit more implicit and hidden. It's about you know, women receiving their invites late. The venues or timings are kind of impossible for them to reach or they're not given equal access and space to speak in the meetings. Their comments are left out of meeting records and and so on. And when we talk about resistance, it's also important to remember it doesn't always come from the conflict stakeholders. It can also come from the third party mediator. They may simply think that including women is not relevant. It's not a matter of importance or urgency. And there we do see at least some positive developments. We've been working with mediators together with the UN, as well as a Peace Research Institute of Oslo for over a decade. And 10 years back, mediators would come to these seminars concerning gender-inclusive mediation with the question of like, why? Why is this important? Why should we care about this? And these days, they're most often mediation envoys and practitioners are coming, how? How do we do this work better? So they're also positive uh, signs of progress. 
But on those occasions where you have encountered or do still encounter that kind of resistance to including women in a process, what techniques have you developed for overcoming that? How do you persuade people that it's actually in their own interests to allow this to happen? Well, first, it's really important to understand what is that resistance about? Where is it coming from and why? And all of that work is very context specific. The most effective way to minimize and counter resistance often is broad-based national women's movement and national mobilization coalitions. There's a history of women's uh, movement and mobilization in many of these countries, and it's about giving voice and support to them to be asking and demanding for their say and seat at peacemaking tables. And of course, it's while it's national work, international partners can support that. They can support spaces for coalition building and dialogue. Also, another uh, way to overcome the resistance is the work of the mediator, how the mediator designs processes that really matters, so that including women is not an afterthought, but it's something that is brought into the thinking and starting from context analysis and preparations. Who do you talk to when you're trying to understand the drivers of the conflict, the stakeholders that are relevant, mapping of possible agenda items and solutions, and they're already starting to listen, different women's constituencies, different women's groups, and bringing that thinking and analysis to the preparation is a crucial starting point. And finally, I would say it's really the groundwork is done at peacetime. It's the long-term work for gender equality, and particularly in politics, that paves the ground for women's inclusion to peace processes. Johanna, thank you. That was Johanna Paltonen, Head of Women in Peacemaking at the Crisis Management Initiative. And that's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk and this week's Foreign Desk Explainer was produced by Emma Searle and edited by David Stevens. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.